0: Welcome to Current Radio's politics station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. Abby, let's turn our attention to Japan, where the ruling Liberal Democratic Party is in the midst of a significant scandal. It's all about millions of dollars in undocumented political funds. What's your take on this?
1: It's a big deal, Michael. The AB and Nikkei factions of the LDP, two of the most influential groups within the party, are under fire. They're accused of failing to declare their income and expenditure properly and even rerouting political funds as kickbacks. Tokyo prosecutors have…
0: Right. They've sent more than a dozen investigators to search the offices of these factions. The Abe faction alone is suspected of failing to declare up to 500 million yen, or about 3.5 million dollars, over five years. That's a hefty sum.
1: And let's not forget the Nikai faction. They're allegedly failing to report donations of over 100 million yen. It's not just about the money, but the potential breach of the country's political funds control law.
0: Right, and there's a twist. The two factions are suspected of paying kickbacks to some of their member lawmakers from the proceeds of fundraising sales that weren't properly recorded. Now, that's a serious allegation. Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshimasa Hayashi said Prime Minister Fumio Kishida would take the necessary measures to ensure accountability, but...
1: But will it be enough? Kishida has replaced four cabinet ministers in an attempt to control the damage, but public support doesn't seem to be rebounding. A recent survey found disapproval levels for the cabinet at a whopping 79%, the highest since the poll began in 1947.
0: Indeed... And Professor Masaru Nishikawa from Tsuda University in Tokyo has noted that the approval rating for the Kishida administration has nosedived to 23%. This scandal is likely to significantly impact the cabinet.
1: And it's not the first time Japan has faced such issues. Financial scandals involving government members are not uncommon in the country. But this one, it seems to stand out for the amounts of money involved and the systemic nature of the alleged kickbacks. Even though Japan ranks fairly well in the Corruption Perceptions Index, it's clear there are still challenges to be addressed.
0: And what's interesting is that the officials involved are not just minor players, but major names who might have once been destined for the highest office. Yet, as Paul Nado from Temple University's Tokyo campus points out, it's too soon to gauge the impact this scandal will have on the LDP, given the limited success of opposition parties over the years.
1: The public seems to be responding with resigned anger, clearly unhappy, but not really expecting much better. It's a complex situation and it will be interesting to see how it unfolds in the coming weeks and months.
0: From one global issue to another, let's pivot from the financial scandals in Japan to a broader perspective on our global governance. The world we live in today is largely shaped by a rules-based system established in the aftermath of World War II, with the promise of peace and cooperation. However, recent events are raising questions about its effectiveness and resilience. Let's delve into this, Abby. Abby, I'd like to dive into the topic of our rules-based world, the triumph of peace over war, or at least that's how the narrative has been spun for the past 80 years. But it seems that faith in this system is waning. What's your take on this?
1: The rise of aggression by Russia and escalating violence globally certainly seems to be testing the effectiveness of our international institutions, Michael. They appear powerless, and in some cases, even complicit in the crises we're facing.
0: And that brings us to a critical juncture, doesn't it? The risk of a system collapse and a return to a might-makes-right world. But the question is, how do we save our rules-based international system? Can we just patch up the existing system, or do we need a more fundamental change?
1: Exactly, Michael. The ongoing aggression by Russia against Ukraine is a glaring example of how the system has been exploited. And if this continues, there's a risk we might just lose interest in saving the system altogether.
0: It's a sobering thought, and it's not just about saving the system, but ensuring it's representative and inclusive. Victims of imperial conquest in Africa and parts of Europe, for instance, feel disengaged from it. And during the Second World War, the smaller nations of Eastern Europe found themselves forced into spheres of influence and subjected to horrific aggression. We need to ensure everyone has a say in the decisions that affect
1: them. Indeed, Michael. And that's where the need for a more resilient international system comes in. One that's not only resistant to aggressors, but also better equipped to handle poverty, disease, and the climate crisis. Estonia, for instance, is calling for a new global conversation about how to make the world fit for freedom.
0: And part of that involves strengthening the international rules-based order by acknowledging its flaws and ensuring it better reflects the realities of the 21st century. This includes reforming the UN. The Security Council, for example, needs additional permanent members to better reflect our modern world. But it also needs to be reminded that it has primary, not exclusive responsibility for international peace and security.
1: Absolutely, Michael. And we must protect the world from abusive veto users. We can do that by supporting initiatives like the French-Mexican initiative on veto restraint and the code of conduct by the accountability, coherence, and transparency group. But there's also a need to be more creative and ambitious. For example, Estonia proposes forming a core group to analyze the course of action to be taken by the General Assembly when a permanent member of the Security Council tramples on the UN Charter.
0: And then there's the issue of the ICC. It's been left without jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, even though it was established as the supreme crime of international law at the Nuremberg Trials of the Nazis, and finally defined by all nations in 2010. This is a clear example of a broken international system that allows the open violation of its most basic of international principles with impunity.
1: Right. And in the case of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, this weakness needs to be addressed urgently. The General Assembly must take a lead. It has already repeatedly condemned Russia's aggression against Ukraine and agreed there must be accountability for international crimes. To enforce this, it must create a special tribunal now to deal with the crime of aggression.
0: And we mustn't forget the importance of recognizing that the countries that most seriously violate international commitments to other countries are also more likely to have already violated their own domestic commitments to their citizenry. The promotion of human rights and basic freedoms needs to become a natural part of global security policy. It's about ensuring all people are protected from violence. This is essential for those more likely to face risks of harm as a result of their work, such as human rights defenders and journalists. It's also essential for marginal and vulnerable groups such as women and children, ethnic and religious minorities, refugees, migrants, and those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, and
1: transgender. Indeed, Michael. And it's also about safeguarding freedom of speech, which includes both the freedom of the media and the freedom of the Internet. And finally, we must expand the inclusivity of international policymaking to make a world fit for freedom. That includes enabling the world's small states and civil society to have a greater say in international matters that are traditionally decided by big states and blocs.
0: Absolutely, Abby. We're at a pivotal moment in world history. The only certainty is that the existing international system cannot survive unchanged much longer. However challenging the world becomes, remember that it was during the very darkest days of the Second World War that the rules-based world was developed in its current iteration. In the spring of 1941, almost all of Europe had fallen to the totalitarian powers. While victory for the Allies was far from certain, representatives of occupied and allied nations met in bombed-out London to, in their words, define some purpose more creative than military victory.
1: That's a powerful reminder, Michael. And that conversation led to the creation of the UN, whose charter they began drafting even prior to D-Day, as well as the Nuremberg trials, which laid the foundation for modern international law and the ICC. That conversation should never have been considered finished. We must not wait for a repeat of the devastation that they endured. We can and must continue the momentum that they started and inspire a new global conversation on making the world fit for freedom.
0: From a global conversation on maintaining peace and ensuring a world fit for freedom, let's now shift our focus to a more specific region in Europe. We're turning our attention to Germany, where a series of diaries from a German banker are stirring up some political turbulence. Let's delve into this intriguing development. Let's shift our focus to Germany now. It seems Chancellor Olaf Scholz is facing some political turbulence. Abby, what's the latest on this?
1: Well, Michael, it appears that a series of diaries from a German banker are adding to the political woes of Chancellor Schultz. The contents of these diaries have not been fully disclosed yet, but it's certainly raising eyebrows.
0: That sounds intriguing. I mean, it's not every day that a banker's diaries cause a stir in national politics. Do we have any details about what these diaries contain?
1: Not much at the moment, Michael. But what we do know is that the situation is serious enough to warrant attention from the international community. It's a developing story, and we'll have to wait and see how it unfolds.
0: Right, it's a reminder of how interconnected our world has become. An event in Germany like this can have ripple effects across the globe.
1: Absolutely, Michael, and it's not just the political sphere, but also the financial and corporate sectors that could feel the impact of this. It's a testament to the power of information and how it can shape our perception of leaders and institutions.
0: And speaking of perception, it's crucial to remember that we're still in the early stages of this situation. It's important to stay informed and be aware of the potential risks and opportunities that could arise from this.
1: That's a great point, Michael. It's a reminder that we should always be critical of the information we consume and not jump to conclusions based on preliminary reports. We'll keep our listeners updated as more information becomes available.
0: As we keep an eye on the unfolding situation in Germany, let's pivot our attention back to the United States. There's a significant development in the political landscape that's making waves. A recent ruling by Colorado's Supreme Court has thrown an unexpected twist into the 2024 election scenario. Let's delve into this. Well, Abby... Colorado Supreme Court has certainly thrown a curveball into the political landscape with their ruling on former President Donald Trump's eligibility to run in the 2024 election.
1: Absolutely, Michael. This ruling is historic, as it's the first time we're seeing the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists holding public office being applied to a former president. The court has essentially said that Trump's actions on January 6, 2021, make him ineligible to run.
0: Yes, and it's not just about the insurrection, but the court's interpretation of Trump's speech on that day. They ruled it as not being protected by the First Amendment, stating that he incited violence and disrupted the peaceful transfer of
1: power. This ruling, though, doesn't mean Trump's political journey is over. The Colorado justices have paused their ruling to allow Trump to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And with the court's conservative supermajority, It's anyone's guess how they'll handle the case.
0: That's right, and timing is crucial here. With the Iowa caucuses kicking off the GOP primary season in less than a month, the speed of the Supreme Court's decision could significantly impact the political calendar. And we can't forget about Trump's ability to turn legal setbacks into polling bounces.
1: True, and if the appeal isn't settled quickly, Trump could even preserve his spot on Colorado's primary ballot. But even if he wins the GOP nomination, he could still be disqualified for the general election if the Supreme Court upholds Colorado's ruling.
0: There's also the dissenting voices within the Colorado court. Some justices argue that a candidate shouldn't be disqualified under the 14th Amendment if they haven't been convicted of insurrection, which is a federal crime. Trump hasn't been charged with insurrection, so this could be a potential loophole for him.
1: Yes. And Justice Carlos Samor's dissenting opinion was particularly pointed. He's been in the justice system for over three decades and says this case is unlike anything he's seen before. His dissent could provide a path to victory for Trump in the Supreme Court.
0: And let's not forget the weight of this case. It's uncharted territory, and the justices acknowledge the magnitude of the questions before them. It's a reminder of how Trump's presidency has reshaped our political landscape and...
1: Right, Michael? It's not just about one election or one candidate. It's about the interpretation of our Constitution and the precedent it sets for future cases. This case could redefine the boundaries of our democracy.